0: There we go. All right, friends. We apologize. We're half an hour late for all the technical (laughs) difficulties. And this is going to be Ordinary Takes number six. Ordinary Takes is a podcast version of the radio show teacher on the radio that I do at Tennessee Tech. And it's also a collaboration with my fanzine, Ordinary Space, that I do with Rick Quinn, who's unfortunately not here today. Uh, But uh, it is a uh, theology pop culture fanzine that he and I started uh, several years ago. So and I think uh, I think Harry Smith is is a theology, like unto himself. So it does overlap the mysticism and the magic and the miraculous and the weird the weird uh, theology as the weird. So I've got two wonderful guests here with me to talk about Harry Smith. His his face is on the screen. I will pull that that slide down here in just a minute, but my name is Andrew Smith. I'm in Cookville, Tennessee. And um, for my day job to be able to afford all of my hobbies, I work at Tennessee Tech, and uh, Michael White had a connection with Cookville, lasted many years, uh, and I, I met him finally because of Ann Waldman, a uh, great poet, American poet, who is one of our connections that brings the three of us here together, which is the Naropa Institute in Boulder and the Jack Kerouac School of disembodied poetics but Mike is joining Michael White is joining us from his home in Brush Creek Tennessee his ashram uh, his personal uh, art studio library and museum I've visited it once and I want to go back immediately and live there under his uh, his nice beautiful oriental rug that he, he's sitting on top of right now <laughs> michael white joins us from brush creek tennessee and joining us from the suburbs of detroit the motor city a a veritably beatnik place if there ever was one place where john sinclair of the white panther party is from and and the, and the mc5 and all kinds of other great things john wright i also met in boulder back in the day when I should have met Michael, um, uh, when we, I was traipsing around in my long hair and my, and my weird clothing. And I was on the Alan Gins, I was one of many young uh, poets who, who, who ran to Boulder to chase after Alan and I got to take his class and it was amazing. And we love Alan so much. And Alan of course loved Harry Smith so much. So today our topic is the American artist, Harry Smith. And so for the first thing um, first of all, I'm gonna I'm, this will be about a double question. Why should anyone care about Harry Smith? And the second question is, wh- one of your your favorite Harry Smith memories since you both had the honor of meeting him. And I'm literally like a little fanboy grifting off of your vibes. <laughs> I want to get I want to get some secondhand smoke from your Harry Smith vibes. I want to catch a, I want to catch a contact buzz from you guys on Harry Smith today. So I'm gonna to try to tell um, uh, StreamYard to stop sharing that beautiful picture of Harry so we can see your beautiful faces. And I'm gonna guess, I'll go, uh, I'll go uh, counter, is that clockwise? I'll go clockwise around my screen. Uh, I've, I've known John longer than you, uh, uh, Michael. So uh, beauty before age, uh, John Wright. John Wright, tell us about why anybody should care about Harry Smith and tell us one of your favorite Harry Smith memories
1: okay um i would say that in any number of fields he's just somebody that maybe you you haven't heard of but he is incredibly influential and he he really was this polymath to somebody who was into all these different arts and practices Let, let me just mention too like in in filmmaking he was one of the i believe one of the first people to paint on film and was a huge pioneer in like, like abstract film in the, in the 1940s. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of things that you just kind of take, you know, take for granted now. He, he was, he was doing that first, like way back in the day. And then I'd say my main obsession with him and what it's hard to say, but I would say what his, his main impact on the culture has been is through, um, is through music and through his, uh, work as a collector, as an anthologist, as a a musicologist, and especially in putting out this um, landmark anthology, uh, the uh, Folkways Anthology of American Folk Music, which came out in 1952 and was a collection of old recordings um, made mostly in the 1920s and that was hugely influential on the uh, folk movement and, you know, starting, starting in the 1950s, everybody, Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, they were, like, obsessed with these things, and they learned the songs. They took the melodies and wrote new lyrics to them. They used the, the tropes and the styles in, in, in these songs. And since this came out, there's just been, like, generations of, of musicians who have been influenced by this, wh- whether they know it or not. So to me, that's, like, the, the main connection with them is prob- probably through the music, even though he had many... You know other
0: other facets. And uh John, you might not know this about me because I've I've run from it for half my life, but I'm really a deadhead and I love the Grateful Dead so much and and Jerry Garcia um said that that you know, the folk music he knew when he was growing up was all the commercial folk music which would be on the radio at the time for him so Pink he mentions Yeah, exactly. You know. Nothing wrong with that, but yeah, yeah. Peter Peter, Puff, Puff, the magic dragon, Peter Paul and Mary, right? And so uh, leaving on a jet plane, John Denver, you know, so that was like pop folk writ large at that time period. And he said Harry Smith was the gateway for him to the deep roots of the tradition. And so just to know that the the lineage, all of our lineage, if you're a deadhead, Harry Smith is is in your lineage. It reminds me of how Alan. Used to say that we're all kind of descendants of Walt Whitman, right? So he's the visionary behind the visionaries, and so for people who are into weird folk music and alt folk and psychedelic folk and all of these subgenres of folk music, you can't really get there without coming through the anthology. And so, also, what's really important that uh, I, I felt I had to interrupt before Michael started was to say that he, they supported they kept him. In rent, they paid his rent, they bought his coffee. Their, their foundation, what they the subsidized, Reck- that so subsida- the
1: foundation was kind of pay- paying his bills, right? And later, the, years. so they-, they were
0: his primary patron late mm-hmm. in life, was uh, a, a grant from the Rex Foundation, which was the great. So the Grateful Dead basically kept Harry alive you know toward the end of his life. So we haven't got to the, the second part of the question. so what's the second answer? One really good your first good Harry Smith story. we'll probably get some more.
1: Okay um, and, and of, of, of many and, and this is the one I was mentioning before we, before we went on it and this would be like the, the first time I, I saw Harry Smith is I was out in Boulder in Europa in I'm thinking it's 1988 and I was out there visiting some friends for a few days who, who were students there and kind of mooched on to you know got like a pass from from ann waldman or, or something I was able to check out classes and things and so it's like oh there's going to be this showing of film up at uh up at cu in this auditorium and uh, stan brackage the avant-garde filmmaker who was a professor there at cu was going to put on this like like showing of, of harry smith's films like who's harry smith so i was trying to take in as many things as possible so i, I go in this big auditorium and uh full of people and then they're just like like weird you know little old man this like little gnome and obviously somebody that everybody is in awe of like like okay and so the film start up and it's it, it's early abstractions it's like his first films made in the na- late 1940s and there's music there's a soundtrack for it and the, the music is the butthole surfers which is <laughs> this, this I, I was living in Texas at the time and they were you know this like crazy punk band that I, I'd seen perform like like countless times or whatever so so here's this this film this guy in they name like oh my god you know this you know ah, you know so, so I'm just like losing it over this and, and the films are very short they're they're a couple minutes long and they, they run through them and then, then Harry's like, you know Let, let's play them again or something. So they rewind the films and, and they run them again, and and this time it's uh it's the soundtrack is like uh, Enrico Caruso in like 1902 <laughs> or something, it was like scratchy, you know op- opera, you know of, of Caruso singing. So I'm just like like okay, and um, I, I'm pretty sure I like after that kind of came up and glommed up to him like well uh, uh Harry I'm I'm protectors. I love the the butthole surfers and I I think he probably just brush me off. I, I don't even remember. I'm sure I must have tried to. So, so that's my first memory of him, like my first, first encounter with him. So.
2: All right, well, um, uh, I remember Allen uh, Ginsberg uh, commenting to me one time that Harry was famous to the famous and unknown to everybody else. And that's really the story. If uh, like, if you're Jerry Garcia, Uh, you know who Harry Smith is. If you're Bob Dylan, you know who Harry Smith is. If you're uh, an avant-garde filmmaker or deep into film, you know who Harry Smith is. If you're a a, a graphic artist, uh, you know who Harry Smith is. But if you're just a a regular guy out on the streets, you have no idea who Harry is. So Harry was famous to the famous and unknown to everyone else. And um, he was, just an incredible genius. And to get to hang out in Harry's room was one of the great delights in life. And uh, I I would be at Naropa in the summertime for about two weeks every summer during the course of the 80s and early 90s. And uh, once Harry was there and I got to know him, uh, I would spend the morning, I would go first thing in the morning to Harry's room and uh, check in with him and then do the events all day. And then in the evening, check back in with him. And uh, just loved the guy incredibly. Uh, walking into Harry's room, um, you open the door, and there was two rooms in the apartment. And in one room, he had in the living room, uh, living room kitchen area. He in the living room part of it, he had a log and a boulder. And the log was his couch, and the boulder was his chair, and that was his furniture. And um, uh, Harry taped everything. Harry kept a tape recorder going all the time. And uh, and so I asked him once, you know, what kind of tape recorder he got. And he showed me. And so I went and bought one. It was just like his, you know. And then I ran mine all the time. And, uh, and one time I showed up at Harry's room and there was uh, like four tape recorders going. There was other students in there, too. And we all had our tape recorders going. So there was tapes all around the room. Harry just loved it. And then um, in Harry's bedroom, there was no bed. And over in the corner of the room was this pile of dirty clothes and rags. And he slept on that. And uh, the rest of the room was filled up with boxes and shelves full of stuff. And Harry just collected all the time. And he was collecting uh, packs of cards and, uh, and all kinds of books. And, and he had a shrine set up in his room. And it was a, a, a Tonka, a Tibetan image of a wrathful deity sitting up on a table, and then in front of it, he had a little bronze dog about this tall with his head up that he had positioned looking up at the Tonka, and between the dog and the Tonka was a broken eggshell. And it was beautiful. It was just gorgeous, and it just drew you in, and it was just one of those things. All around here at his apartment was stuff like that. So um I've got other stories about being in Harry's apartment and and I got a great story about having dinner with Harry and Greg Ricorso. So if we, we'll get into those if we have to.
0: So I'm I'm just so uh thrilled that we were able to convene this summit and I'm thinking this is kind of like uh the Jack Kerouac School Alumni Zoom for people who love Harry Smith and I i i think i i think his, his i i he died in 91 and i got there in 91 i think his vibe must have still been kind of wafting around uh uh the place when i when i when i got there and i'm trying to think what it is about him that 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 just draws me to him so magnetically and i think it might be this this hoarder slash curator thing so a compilation album uh, back, I mean, so he, he was dealing in 78s, which were like 45s, it was like one song on one side, one song on the other side. And so, a compilation album back in the day would be you know, uh, maybe two sides. Oh, John, what is that? Uh, let me a, unmute you. Wait, what is that?
1: Uh, it's a 78, um, it, it's not. Very interesting. I have played it. It's just like some dumb pop music. This thing's like a quarter inch thick. Anyway, I, I pulled out a couple of my seventy eights just to you know, hey kids, this is what music. Um, so
0: so, how many how many seventy eights do you have?
1: Um, I I have a, a handful. Um, I, I've I've never been a collector. A, a lot of these I found on the streets when I was living in Brooklyn. Like like I found uh, th- this is amazing. This is. Um, Vocalian, which is a record label that some of the Folkways anthologies things are on. And that this is some kind of like a Yiddish uh, klezmer music or something. Um, and I, I just found this in a, a trash pile in, in Brooklyn. So, so, so I'm, I'm I, not a, there's a collector, but...
0: There's a writer for the New Yorker and she's a lot younger. And also she's a woman in a, in a, ner- in a sector of nerddom where there's a lot of do- like older guys like us sitting around nerding yeah. out about this stuff. So her name is Amanda and she's the New Yorker, one of the New Yorker music critics, but she has a book called uh, do not sell at any price. And it's about 78 collectors. Nice. Um, and it's a fantastic book. I can't recommend it enough. And she has a long section about Harry in it. And she mm. also has uh, there's another author, Um, who's inspired by Harry, called Hari Kunzru. And he's from, he's Indian, but he's from the United Kingdom, but he lives in Brooklyn, I think. And he has a book called White Tears. And it's about white, old white dudes obsession with the blues and young white hipsters obsession (laughs) with the blues. And I think it's subliminally like a critique of Jack White and Third Man and all the retro everything. But it's so beautiful. That guy's
1: writing, yeah, yeah.
0: The book is so well done and it's so scathing. It's almost like a, it's like a parody of like people like us, a bunch of white dudes getting together to talk about like old timey things. Yeah, for sure. but, but I walked into a record store in Atlanta a couple, about a month and a half ago. And I never even noticed the 78s when I go into these record stores. So I walk into this record store that I've never been to before. I mean, I'm sorry, that I have been to before. And I, and I never noticed that they had an entire wall of 78s and they weren't they weren't sorted they weren't organized there some of them had sleeves some of them didn't and it was just literally a wall and i just sat there and just looked at every single one i had no idea what i was looking at i'd heard of some of the artists had not heard of some of the artists so yeah. so harry could have put out you know like uh, a 15 song a 15 song you know two-sided lp uh you know And he's not, he's also not Alan Lomax, right? He's not only going to go and do it this way, which was Alan Lomax seems kind of to me, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but like the straight version of Harry, but like Harry's the Harry version of Harry, but 84 songs, 84 songs into these categories and then into, then the book that goes with it. So it seems to me that he is really, he's the, um, you know, now it's no big deal for me, John. I, I put out about a, a six-hour, maybe a seven-hour. I put a six or, out a six- or seven-hour Spotify playlist called The Election Season. It was going to be the Election Day playlist, but I turned it into The Election. And it helped me emotionally cope with the days preceding the election. And then all the way through, I, I listened to it all the way through um the um, inauguration. And it was political music. Uh. Uh, positive political music on on my side which is definitely the mm-hmm. left side and but so now somebody can put out this massive playl- curated playlist on Spotify in a in a couple of hours you know and you, you can have a, mm-hmm. actually a masterpiece and then Spotify will suggest it's logger its algorithms are actually brilliant and it will actually suggest stuff that you actually want to hear and then and, you know, then you'll add that and Harry was Harry was the first algorithm so I guess yeah. like yeah. the my, my he, he, made, my, he made
1: the first playlist. He made the first mixtape. You know, you can look at the anthology like, like that, that. So was.
0: Uh, talk about, riff on that for me for a while, John, and then Michael come after him, about this idea of his, his uh, the excess. There seems to be a, he didn't like, on, he wasn't only a, a, a filmmaker and he wasn't only mm-hmm. a music collector. And, he, and, and even like the, the, the way he gets called a magi or a shaman, those, those terms now have been cheapened, you know, because, you know, I mean, Jim Morrison, I mean, and I love the doors, but you know, like, you know, when that cheapens the idea and it anyway, yeah. Harry was there in the, in the, nor- in the Northwest and I'm talking too much. And I invited you guys to talk. So I'm going to, so, so John and then, and Michael and, and, and this, we're just going to freestyle for as long as you guys are willing to, to put up with me and I'm willing to put up with you. So, so go, go for it, John. Well, let, let, let me, let me address then like sort of his collecting obsession and
1: yes. how he can just, yeah. accumulate these billions of, of old 78s and then eventually mix them into the anthology that, um, Apparently, he, he started record collecting in uh, about 1940. He was living in the Pacific Northwest. And I, I think the story, like, kind of the, the what set him off is he was, he was going by a thrift store and he heard Uncle Dave Macon, who is one of the artists on the anthology. like, one of my favorites or whatever. He heard, like, an Uncle Dave Macon record playing and was just like, what what is this? You know, goes in there and gets it. And... Uh, at, at the time, you could just get these, these things for, for nothing. Uh, the, the styles of music had, had changed. Music had really changed a lot, say in like the decade when the late 1920s, when the anthology stuff came from, to the 1930s had just been this, this sea change in American popular music. And so there was all this older stuff that had just been, even in a short time, had become kind of archaic, and there were all these old 78s. And then th- this is interesting is once World War II started, they were bringing these records out to the Pacific Northwest to melt them down for shellac for to coat airplanes, like like warplanes. And it, at some point, Harry is working in the, the Boeing factory in Seattle, like outside of Seattle. He, he, was, uh, he, he was 4F, he was ineligible for the draft. I think he had like a curvature of the spine or something. And so he was getting this really well-paid job, like squunching up in little places in B-29 bombers. And I think was bringing in a pretty decent paycheck and could just buy these records. And so he just got like everything, like every genre of music, it's like thousands and thousands of records. And he started gaining like knowledge about them and just took in everything, like every style of music. And then at, just, just to kind of skip ahead. So he just had this huge hoard of records and then at some point he had had moved to New York and was just kind of done with it. You know, oh, I've, I've gone through my record collecting phase and that was nice, but now I'm on to my next obsession. And so he wanted to sell his collection to uh, to Mo Ash, who was the uh, president, whatever, head of, of Folkways Records. Like, I want to sell you this whole stuff of like, you know, everything. And it's like, well, well Harry, why don't instead, why don't you put together... An anthology of what you feel is the best, um, you know, kind of the cream of American folk music, and so out of just this, uh, this huge trove of millions of records, he selected what he thought were these exemplars of, of American folk music, and the, these 84, 84 cuts, and so that that's kind of the process that he used to come to this point where he boiled it down to these 84 songs. So.
2: That's All right, I'll pick it up from there. And uh, so uh, Folkways then released a, I believe it was uh, six, five or six uh, albums, LPs, you know, 33s, uh, in, in a beautiful uh, big old package. Uh, called the Anthology of American Folk Music, which was released in 1952. Do I have that right? You guys know? And uh, so here were these 84 songs that Harry had selected out of this huge pile of 78s that he had collected over the years. And it was what we now call Americana. And it was music recorded from 1927 to 1932. And it was uh, the uh, hillbilly music and and country blues. And had um, Blind Willie Johnson and and uh, Furry Lewis and and uh, on on the blues side um, uh, Mississippi John Hurt and and then on the uh, country hillbilly side it had uh, Doc Boggs and and the uh, the Carter family and and uh, Uncle Dave Macon and and those guys, but when this music came out in 1952 it exploded onto the scene in New York City. And all anybody that cared about folk music uh, got a hold of this thing and listened to it. And the artists of the day mined that stuff. It took a few years for it to work its way into the culture. But uh, on Bob Dylan's first album, there's cuts from the Harry Smith anthology. And Bob Dylan mined the Harry Smith anthology for for albums to come and even still... Uh, albums he did in the 80s and 90s have have tracks from the Harry Smith anthology and uh, the folk music craze that exploded out out of the village in the early in the late 50s and early 60s came right smack out of the Harry Smith anthology and Harry got a lifetime achievement Grammy as a result of it and Harry knew the famous quote from Plato's Republic where Plato warns the rulers of the Republic that if there's a change in the style of music, beware. You know, you better crunch it. You better stop it immediately, because when the style of music changes, it's going to bring a revolution of society. And when Harry accepted his Grammy Award, and uh, in in the uh, new release of the Harry Smith anthology put out by the Smithsonian, there's a little DVD of Harry receiving his Grammy Award and it's it's amazing you see harry's a little wizened guy long crinkly beard and long hair and he stumbles up the stages and then he says you know uh, uh i'm so happy to be here and I, my dreams have come true i've seen society change through music and it's so true that uh they
0: they practically had to carry him up he could barely walk yeah. <laughs> they almost had, they almost needed to like to to like bring him to the stage and and he yeah. could barely, he, the, he, you could barely see him. The podium almost eclipses him. So um, yeah. everyone needs to go and watch the uh, the movie because it's now on Amazon Prime. I think they only re-released it digitally very recently called The Old Weird America. And the kind of the dean of American rock criticism, Griel Marcus, of course, John, he's written about our favorite band, The Sex Pistols. <laughs> One of our favorite bands, The, the Sex Pistols uh, uh, in Lipstick Traces. And Griel Marcus is a bit of a, He's a bit of a pill for me to swallow. He's he he seems to be enamored with his own understanding of everything, and his and he he loves Dylan, but he doesn't like the dad. He loves the Sex Pistols, but maybe he doesn't like Gibby Haynes or whatever. You know, I don't know that for a fact. But I love Griel Marcus. I just I have to take him in, in doses. But Marcus, in his book, seems to be saying something that almost seems ridiculous to be talking about for us in the uh, in the days at uh, in the waning days of Trumpism. What I hope is the waning. Uh, days of Trumpism, but this idea of like the true America. So he talks about this idea of the old free America in his book about, about Dylan. He has a book that's basically about Dylan and Harry Smith. And he says, you know, I love that Marcus, I'm paraphrasing. Of course, he basically says, I love this idea of the old free America, but that sounds too much, you know, probably like a, you know, Budweiser commercial or like a song that, you know, uh, one of these Nashville pop stars would sing. And he said, he said but it's the old weird america and 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 maybe that's what we like about these songs and maybe that's what uh, uh what jerry liked about those songs we haven't addressed this topic about why why this time period right so uh so i remember this is a really this is super like not as as in the deep as harry but i remember as a kid watching American Graffiti, which was uh, George Lucas before Star Wars. And there's that scene where the older guy who still wants to hang out with the high school kids, his, his, his character's name is Milner, and uh, he's driving around this girl, and she's threatening him, you know, because he's too old for her. And, uh, and he says, um, uh, the Beach Boys come on the radio, and he, and he said, I hate that surfing stuff. Uh, rock and Roll died with, with, with Buddy Holly. And and I remember all through growing up, you know, thinking that that was like, you know, Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly. That was like the pure, you know, and and it, Harry kind of set this bar that everything it had to be, be between 1927 and what 1933, 34, and that's the beginning of the recorded era. And then when the record industry apparently went to uh, go downhill due to uh, the Great Depression, so the the 78 boom was going in late 20s early 30s and then there was this tapering due to the great depression and then like you were saying john because of the shellac being you know repurposed uh uh for the uh for the war um and uh, i just wanted to notice also john that our our old pal chris Funkhauser uh, is on the stream right now listening in right now so um i i want to uh I want to tip it back to you, John. But you take it take it away from there, John. I don't think I need to prompt you any. I think we're we're well prompted here. So let's just keep going around the little the, the little triangle here. Uh, we'll each take our turns. So, John, you're you're, you're up. Is, is my
1: mic muted? Oh, okay. Um, so may, maybe I could uh, talk a little. You know, you know where what were these records? Where where did they come from? And so just really briefly, uh, starting about in the early 1920s, the uh, the commercial recording industry discovered that there was a, this market and there was this amazing talent pool of, uh, what I put it, of, of like uh, rural-based uh, black and white music in the American South. They had first kind of gotten an inkling of this with, uh, with jazz bands, like starting in like the, the late teens. And then that kind of led them to, oh, well, there, there's this more kind of, primitive rootsy stuff down there. And so these record companies started sending talent scouts and started doing these recording sessions in some of the larger cities in the south. They would go to like Atlanta or Dallas or Charlotte, North Carolina or Bristol, Tennessee. They'd put out a word, "We're, we're looking for music. We're looking for talent. And people would come in and they would audition and like, okay, you're, you're all right. And they, they didn't really have much of a respect or appreciation for the music but they they had the sense that like these, these people will buy this you know working class southerners of whatever color will buy their kind of music and so it just kept rolling through the 20s and starting in about 1925 they got better recording equipment like electronic recording equipment and were able to get like better quality recording and so that was the golden age like late 1920s they're just discovering all, you know jimmy rogers the carter family just all these amazing you know blind lemon jefferson these amazing blues and country artists getting them on record and there was a market for this stuff it, it was relatively prosperous for working people in the, you know there's so a lot of poverty but people could they wanted to hear their own stuff are like own culture so to have like a wind-up Victrola and be able to buy a record and hear you know your kind of music was was a big deal so there was a, a small market for this um and, and so keep in mind that this was commercial music this wasn't the guys like the the Lomaxes didn't get around until like the 1930s to you know going way up the holler in Appalachia or going to the prison farms in the south and finding the obscure really off the you know, beaten track music. This was like a, a commercial product that big record companies like like Victor were, um, you know, putting putting on on seventy eight and and selling to the um, people. And and so I, I wanted to, um, and and so to kind of jump ahead that 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 famous that Griel Marcus quote about the the old weird America. And I think I think about that. And first of all, it was it was not that weird. You know, this was the kind of music that people wanted to hear. In, in in this demographic, it was commercially available. Had to be. It had to be commercial, or there, there was no point in recording it. And of course, when the when the depression hit, uh, this, this market crash. You know, no people couldn't afford records anymore. And then by the time the record companies started recording again, um, the, the music had like really changed in a within a few years, and people were. Uh, People were playing like in, in different styles. Like some somebody like Robert Johnson, who was a little bit younger than the blues artists on the folkways anthology. He he came of age listening to records. That that's kind of, that's kind of meta. That, that in the 30s that was the first generation of recording artists who um, got there not only from the tradition, the oral tradition, but they they listened to records and they listened to radio. And guys like uh, Bill Monroe, they were still you know, playing these old traditional tunes and same instruments, same style, but they, they were they were listening to jazz, they were listening to older country artists. And so the music really changed. And it's not, oh. oh, the stuff in on the anthology is authentic and then after that it's just a bunch of commercial you know, it was always commercial. They're always, you know, trying to find to sell records, but but there was this huge before and after, like with the, the Great Depression. And then you add in like that and World War II and, and post that, Here, here's my other thing with the, the old weird America, like wasn't that weird and it wasn't that old. You think <laughs> about ni- ni- 1952, and you go back to the late 1920s, that, that's not that far, that's like 20, 25 years that there'd been so much of a, a change in music and in like American culture and consumerism that it, it just seemed like this this chasm that opened up, and so so think about that time period. And I, I've thought about this: that imagine if I was like, you know, man, I, I was I was at this uh, Salvation Army, and and I found the, these old cassettes, and the, this stuff is unbelievable. It's uh, it's Nirvana, Nirvana, and 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 Wu Tang Clan. You know, <laughs> that stuff is
3: amazing. I, I can't believe this even it even existed you know, so long ago and um, oh oh my God, there's still guys alive in these bands
1: and and maybe I can, you know, book them at my 90s revival festival where 23 people are gonna show up. That that was another, for these folk artists, that was another thing in the 50s is like, oh my God, these these people are still alive. You know, they sounded so ancient and, you know, Doc Boggs is still alive, you know, Mississippi John Hurt is still alive, and, and so they would book them at the folk festivals, and you know, some of these people were able to make a, a decent a decent living.
0: John, you so, are so you, you are so right. I'm I'm interrupting Michael's turn here, but you are so right. No. I saw I saw a kid in a cafe, uh, working in a cafe, wearing a Bad Brains t-shirt, and he wasn't around when the bad the Bad Brains were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and like. <laughs> And, and also, too, the kids in my, in my like, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, uh, um, Stranger Things, these movies that have come out that kind of capture the 80s, 90s vibe. Like, the kids in my classes, like, they literally are blown away by stuff, anything to do with the 80s and 90s. I mean, they're absolutely, because they were all born in 2002. They're absolutely blown away by the 80s and 90s. And as a matter of fact, when I started, uh, I've been doing a mixtape project in my, um, curriculum for years now, um, and they just all make play- make playlists. For a very short period, they were making mixed CDs, but now they all just make playlists on whatever platform they prefer. I prefer Spotify just because it's easier to share that way. It's a social as a social aspect to it. But I remember teaching this uh, a couple years ago, and I had a student who was already into kind of all the retro stuff. He went out thrifting, and he bought a bunch of boom boxes. He bought a bunch of old Walkmans. He started buying up old cassettes at at Goodwill. And he figured out how to take his iPhone and play music and use the external jack. And he would bootleg onto cassette. So he would make cassettes recorded off of his iPod or his iPhone because he wanted to have it on a cassette and not on his phone. So he actually literally ripped it to cassette from the phone. And he was completely into it like legit into it i just was like ah.
1: <laughs> but yeah i guess it, there's this yearning for authenticity and realness and, and it, it exists somewhere in the you know in the, in the, in the misty past and, and i imagine people growing up and all, all the stereotypical sterile plasticness of the 50s and, and hearing this stuff which was not that long, not that long ago and many of these artists were still alive like this is this is it this is so much better than my awful suburban life and you know i I want this i want to learn how to play these songs and grasp you know something you know something real something something authentic very you know understandable impulse
2: All right, I'll pick it up here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, here is, this is the Smithsonian release. I wish I had the original, but uh, it costs like 900 bucks or something to get, to get one of the originals. But uh, if you can see here, on the cover is what they call a monochord, and that is a single-stringed instrument. And then up at the top of the monochord is a knob, and there's a hand adjusting the string there, and that's the hand of God and a setting that the tone of the music and this was you know for harry the image of creation and so um this is the 84 songs that harry chose and it has the booklet with harry's uh notes on each of the songs and all that stuff and uh this is uh what the dynamite of uh of the counterculture and the folk music revival that happened in the late 50s and 60s and where where they all learned how to play, so. uh, But that's not all that Harry did by any means. Harry uh, recorded himself. Not only did he collect, he also recorded. And uh, he recorded um, uh, uh, Allen Ginsberg's uh, album, New York Blues. And uh, there's a picture of Harry on there. And he recorded the very first Fugs record and uh, before that, uh, when Harry was a kid, uh, when he was 14 and 15 years old, he was growing up on the on the northwest coast, and there was an Indian tribe, and he got himself a tape recorder and went out to the Indian tribe, and whenever they would do a dance uh, and do their chants, uh, he was recording it. And one of his early recordings was uh, the Kiowa peyote meetings. And... Uh, and Harry went and lived with the Kiowa Indians for a while. Uh, he told me a story uh, that they would all get drunk and uh, they would go out on the streets and they would be walking down the streets and the cops would come and arrest all the Indians. And uh, they wouldn't arrest him. And he was standing there like, what's going on, you know? And he said they would arrest the Indians and they they would arrest them for what they called staggering. And that was good enough, you know, so they would throw the Indians in jail. But... When Harry made his selections, back to the anthology, when Harry made his selections, he made more than the 84, and um, uh, the folklore people, uh, Folkways people cut it down to the 84, but eventually, uh, all of it was was released, and there is an album uh, from Revenant Records uh, of the other cuts that uh, were not included that Harry chose. That would have been albums seven, eight, and nine, or whatever they were, uh, to put on there. So that's that's sort of available as well. Got a really, really nice little book with it. So uh, that's, that's fun to hear as well. And then just uh, recently, uh, 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 some people called Dust to Digital have uh, dug back in to the old 78s and they have released the B sides of all of the songs that Harry dug up, you know, back in those days, you had one song on one side and another song on the other side, and that was all you got. And uh, uh, and so these people dug in, and uh, uh, the B-side would be the same artist as the A-side, you know. And Harry sometimes chose the B-sides, not the A-sides, but the other side of the record has now been released in this amazing little recording called Harry Smith's b side. It has a great little book in it as well. So, uh, and then Harry recorded everything with his tape recorder. And uh, so uh, my first meeting with Harry, I, uh, I'll tell this story real quick. I, I was at Naropa in 1988 and they were having a performance of Polynesian dance. And so I went in and uh, into the Naropa little auditorium. It was a high uh, junior high school. And uh, uh Oh, have I frozen up? Uh-oh,
0: Michael, we can hear you just fine.
2: Okay, uh, yeah. my image froze on the screen, so keep, uh, go, keep
0: going. We're, we're on a roll, brother, and we've got okay. Uh, Michael, let me just uh, let me just check in here. We've got uh, Leanne Brown and and Tony Torn on the call. We got Chris. So this is a Jack Kerouac School family reunion uh, going on right here. And we have I have a friend from the uh, Tennessee area who wants to talk about the holy modal rounders. uh, (laughs) And and we we got a shout out to Ed Sanders out on the comments as well. Uh, Michael, uh, you were in the middle of trying to tell us a story, a hairy story.
2: All right. So this was my first meeting with Harry and uh, I'd gone to this event in the evening at Naropa and it was a Polynesian dance event. And uh, I went in and and went up right to the middle of the auditorium and up on some bleachers halfway up and sat down. And as I was sitting there, I was there about 10 minutes before it started. Allen Ginsberg walked in and beside him was this wizened looking old guy who was his shoulders were really bent down and and this long straggly hair and his His hair looked like it had turned white and then yellowed after that. And um, and I thought, now that is one of the most interesting characters I've ever seen in my life. I've got to go ask Alan who this is and figure out a way. Can I meet this guy? And so I was thinking all this. And then Alan went and sat right down on the front row and Harry walks up into the bleachers and uh, makes his way up into the bleachers and then comes over and sits down right beside me. And I say, well, good evening. How are you doing? And he says, I hope you're not one of these guys that talks all the time. And I said, oh, don't worry. Don't worry. I won't mess with you. And he was bringing out his tape recorder. And he tape recorded the whole event. And I kept my mouth shut. But then I had an entrance to, to Harry and got to know him. So uh, it was great fun to, to uh, get to meet him that way. And uh, he had a very distinctive, whiny kind of uh, New York sort of voice. Uh, I don't know why it was New York, because he grew up in the East, on the West Coast, but a uh, very distinctive voice. So so that's some stories about um, Harry's recording career and my my first meeting with him. So, Andrew, my screen's froze up. Uh, am I, I froze up on your end?
0: No, you sound great to us. You sound great to us. Okay. Um, you know what? I feel like, John, I feel like you need to play us a song. I just, uh, I feel like you oh. uh, it's it, it's time to uh, it's time to do that. Oh, uh, so uh, from Leanne and Tony, they're starting uh, uh, something called uh, Tender Vinyl Literary Audio, and they've placed their link in the in the comments. And so we'll definitely have to give that a listen. And about the rec- well, well, uh, John's getting his banjo ready. Um, about recording everything, I don't remember what jag I was on, but but Naropa has a lot of audio like on their website from the jack Her- there's a jack harrowack school audio archive on- online and one time i was browsing around there leanne and i found recordings of your class that i took and i really this is freaking me out that it was 30 years ago this coming summer that i took your class and then shortly after that you came to detroit and we hung out with uh, uh chris and george tish and all my, uh, many other wonders have, have have and it's been about 20 years since i met you tony i met you when i went to visit leanne and i was at my uh my cousin's wedding, and that's been forever ago too. John, what are we going to hear from uh, from the anthology? Um, we're going to hear the the Waggoner's Lad
1: by Buell Casey. and th- that's one of the cool things about the the anthology is 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 the, the names. You know, just some of these people. You know, Blind Willie Johnson or you know uh, Doc Boggs. It just who are these guys? Uh, so so Buell Casey was. Uh, He he was from Kentucky. He was uh, an ordained Baptist minister. And that's another thing. It's like, you know, people think, oh, these people, they're they're all these poor sharecroppers and coal miners making this music. Well, you know, not not really. You know, the, the idea was that you became a musician, so you didn't have to be a sharecropper or a coal miner. This wasn't just people picking on the back porch after a weary day at work. They were um, you know, trying to make it as, as musicians, and, and then some of them, like Yule Casey and uh Lamar Lumsford, were sort of from the more educated, you know, rural middle class or something. So it wasn't just this, this, this like poverty music. Oh, okay, so anyway, uh, Yul uh ordained Baptist minister from Kentucky, banjo player, recorded a lot of folk material in like like the twenties. One one of the one person who got uh, a lot of the stuff on on record. At the time, anyway. So, so this is a song called the, the Wagoner's Lad, and it, it's very early on the anthology. I think it's about number six or seven. And Harry tried to have the the first cuts were uh, ballads that had made it from the British Isles over to Appalachia and had, had been, you know, kind of changed and Americanized, but but had their roots in um, in like uh, traditional ballads from from the old country. Anyway, so um,
0: right, right. Quick, John. Before you start, Michael, I'm going to remove our pictures from the screen while while John plays. But we're still going to be here, so don't go anywhere, okay? But we're going to take uh you and I off our pictures off the screen while while John sings to us.
1: Okay, and see my banjo a little bit. Okay, so Wagner's Lad. <laughs>
3: Oh, hard is the fortune of all womankind, they're always controlled, they're always confined, controlled by their parents, till they are wives and slaves to their husbands the rest of their lives, I I, am I've always I've always been courted. He courted me daily.
1: And he is
3: they say I'm not worthy I'm a drinker I work for my baby, my money's my own. to Yay!
0: <laughs> so... What haven't we? What haven't we covered? It seems like there's got to be much more. I think I want to just talk for a minute since it was brought up in the comments about artists that have tried to stay true to this uh, to this lineage. So we, we we have the obvious ones, which are are Bob Dylan and the Dead. And so so just like you can't have Ginsberg without Walt Whitman, you can't really have Dylan and the Dead without the Harry Smith anthology. Um. And, uh, uh, but, but somebody brought up in the, in the chat, the holy mold of rounders. And I think we need, at least need to mention them and the whole psychedelic uh, folk music, psych- psychedelic folk movement that kind of still is permeates. It's, it's been called acid folk. Uh, um, there's many contemporary folk who, who do that sort of, I don't know, style, but then there's also, I think, John, you might be more aware of this too. The, the kind of scene where you go, like in Smithville. Not the not the made up Smithville of Harry Smith, but in here, <laughs> literally in Smithville, Tennessee, they have the Fiddlers Jamboree, and you have these old time festivals where these folks just literally mm-hmm. come out and play, you know, play old time music. So I think you have the, like these maybe two lanes, maybe or three lanes. You've got like the old time lane, but then you have the more s- psychedelic folk lane, which mm-hmm. the the old coffee house kind of lane. Um, what 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 do we need to say about people? Like the Holy Molder Rounders, and I, there's got to be some other ones. They seem they seem like the well. We mentioned the Fugs. Uh, there's definitely like the New York kind of boat. So uh, all the different Seeger, uh, the the Lost City Ramblers, or whatever they were called. Um, David Johansen. Is- David okay. Johansen,
2: you know, has did a did a thing called the Harry Smith Project,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, or the Harry Smith uh David Johansson and the Harry Smiths he had a band called the Harry Smiths right, right. yeah Michael and,
0: Michael since you have it right there grab that grab that again and read us some of the other people that are on are on here in our our comment thread they're going to jump into and so we're going to come up with a good a good collaborative list here of who everybody who's in there so we got Michael Hurley and Steven Saeed from Chris and from Tony um on the stream John are you familiar with the Holy Molder Rounders cuz got well
1: let me and uh, it, here, here's the story is um when uh I, I guess I guess I was about eighteen and i I just graduated from high school and I uh, was you know the, this miserable angsty kid and was going through all this stuff and, and my my music I, I I think I was maybe just discovering punk um this would have been like about nineteen seventy seven or so and uh I, I, I grew up like in a fundamentalist, like a, a singing church. So I, I had that in me. This was in the South, it was in Louisiana. Cajun music, that was around country music, you know, which I just kind of scoffed at or though some of it seemed kind of cool. And then me and a friend of mine went over to this a guy who was like a year older than us and, and was like the, the cool guy in our high school, you know, the the one hipster guy at this really square jockish high school or whatever went over to his apartment and he's playing these records and uh one of them was the thugs and it it, it was like really you know really obscene and you know you know so i I was getting off on that the kind of irreverent you know obscenity the quality of the thugs but oh oh this is this is cool you know so i I discovered that and i at the same time i think like the the holy modal rounders uh so at 18 19 and, and and years later like made you know kind of made the connection and so so very early on, I was like, you know, ter- you know, turned on to, to that music. And just a- about them, they, they were some of these uh, young folkies, you know, in New York scene, maybe like late 50s, early 60s. And there, there were guys that, um, and, and t- total respect to them, like people like the new Lost City Ramblers who, you know, we need to play it exactly like Uncle Dave Macon did. I'm really going to work on my Flawhammer banjo and my, my fiddle style, you know, really trying to play these artists, these songs as they played it. And then there were guys like the holy modal rounders who were um, like taking psychedelics and just really going off in these crazy directions. And we're still like really good musicians. And we're either, either playing the songs or uh, writing new lyrics, using, using the melodies. So there, there were these kind of like, you know, two divergent paths, I think, of, of what people did with this music and this material, and so they're, they're a great example of the one kind of left-handed crazy path.
0: And, and there's got to be some some people right right now that are that are on that uh, on that visionary train. But there was something I bought an album at like a used bin, and my vinyl collection when I was in in Detroit, and I lost most of them. But it was like maybe a hundred albums or something. And I was very late. You know, I mean, I thought. I thought I had discovered everything alternative folk. Don't laugh at me, John, but I remember when I first heard Nick Drake, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I thought, this is it, you know, I've, you know, I've gotten to the end of the road here. This is the most obscure, you know, and now you have so many artists, you know, that are so like riffing off of the kind of style that Nick Drake did. And they're like in every movie and in every, like every Starbucks playlist, you know? So you have the kind of, i mean i don't hate me also because i love i love like say like mumford and mumford and sons would be another example of that you know and i like i mentioned earlier in the call peter paul and mary and john denver and i love i love all of it but there was something about hearing the holy motor rounders and i got them on a compilation album that i bought for like two dollars in a used bin in one of the defunct detroit record stores and it was a song called blues in the bottle and i think i listened to that song just over and over and over again and there was just something they they just put a little bit of something something on there. Maybe they you know filtered it through like a, a bong or something. You know I mean? yeah. it was it was the same thing but with a bong. You know and it just they, I don't know. It, it, it blew they, my. They heard, they
1: heard they heard a recording somewhere and they half remembered the lyrics and so they I, I know that song and 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 they then they they just made up other stuff. You know like like made up kooky lyrics or they didn't remember them or heard them, which which is like part of the the folk process. That's what happens when things are, you know, they, they probably heard they were stoned in some guy's apartment in the East Village in 1958 and heard Prince Albert Hunt's recording and then, you know, half-remembered it and...
0: Hey, uh, I, Michael, did you send out my link? I think we're about to, the party's about to get crashed by a friend of yours. Do you want to introduce him?
2: Oh, is this Ron Whitehead?
0: Yeah, if anybody else wants to crash the party, Hey, Leanne and Tony, if you guys want to crash the party, uh, hit my mess my messenger up, and I'll I'll send you the link. I think this is about to get wild. Go sure. ahead and in- introduce your friend uh, Michael.
2: Well, uh, Ron Whitehead is is a, a true uh, a beat uh, poet in his own right, uh, latter day, and uh, a wonderful guy. He was great friends with uh, Hunter S. Thompson, uh, uh, Fruengetti. Has uh, been around for years. He's uh, about perhaps to become the poet laureate of Kentucky. Grew up in rural Kentucky playing basketball way back on the dirt roads of uh, northern rural Kentucky up by the Ohio River, but had poetry in his bones and uh, could not be anything else but a great poet. And um, uh, I've gotten to know Ron in the last couple of years and, and it's been a delight. Uh, To listen to his uh, CDs and and to collect his books. Uh, He's he's a great poet world traveler and uh, Just an inspiration and and one of the the wildest uh, Kentucky poets that that have ever emerged out of the hills of Northern Kentucky so. So
0: Ron, I think you know Michael has been trying to get me to talk to you for months he emails me about every three weeks and says, "Have you called Ron Whitehead yet?" And this he, <laughs> now he invited you to crash our Zoom, our our, our Streamyard party here. R- Ron, welcome to the stream. And, and 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 as a point of entry, tell us how you are affiliated with Harry, Harry Smith in whatever fashion you want to be.
4: Well, thank you, thank you, Andrew, and and thank you, Michael. It's good to see you all. Hello, John. Uh, I look forward to meeting you and Andrew in person. Can you hear me? Okay. Okay. All right. Well, you know, I I was blessed to work with, um, with nearly all the beats, uh, with, I did a lot of work with Allen Ginsberg and with Gregory Corso and, um, with David Amram and uh, Herbert Hunky, and, and I stood at Kerouac's grave in Lowell with his only child, with Jan, for her one and only visit there. And, um, and I work with Baraka and Diane Prima and Ed Sanders and Ann Waldman and and um but Kerouac and Jack and Neil were gone before I entered the fray. Uh it was right after their death that I opened the first underground bookstore in Kentucky and um, had a head shop. It's called I named it for Mad Men Only. And after the magic theater and Ste- and uh, Herman Hess's Steppenwolf published in 1927 and had the head shop was named the store and um, but we sold all the city lights books. We just sold, I sold all the books. I went, I read myself and wanted to read and records and vinyl records. And, um, and I had been reading them, you know, I'm, I, just turned 70. was born on Thanksgiving Day, November 23rd, 1950. But I was reading about them growing up on the farm and read everything I could get my hands on. But I never realized when I was running that underground bookstore and reading their work work and reading everything I could get my hands on um, that interested me and that I would one day become friends with them and work with them, edit and publish, and share the stage and the page with them. And so it was a great honor. And Hunter S. Thompson was one of those people. I produced the official Hunter S. Thompson tribute. And I brought in Hunter and Johnny Depp and Warren Zivon and his mom and son and so many others. But Harry Smith, as much as I wanted to meet him... <laughs> He was one. It just didn't happen. So I, he's one of the people I just had to read about and hear stories about so many amazing stories. So that's just one of the many reasons I'm here because Michael invited me and, you know, I won't hear anything Michael has to say. And um, but also I've always been curious about I, I want to know as much as possible and more about Harry Smith. So that's why I'm here.
0: Uh, uh, Ron, I don't know if you got on the broadcast right at the beginning, but I felt that uh, I had to, uh, I had to talk to Michael and John because they knew Harry and I want, I told them I had to catch a a, 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 a contact buzz uh, from them but I, I think there is a there's a uh, what what do they, what do they say? It's, it's like, uh, we're, we're eating leftovers and John's bringing, John's bringing, you know, and I've got a stale donut and my, and Michael's got some, you know, um, rice that he made and, and John's got this, you know, you know, three day old cabbage and we're, we're going to sit down and, and, and have this, uh, have this party. So, so, so where did, uh, Ron, where did Harry land for you, Uh, Because I feel the same way. Like I met John at Naropa and I I remember, I think it was, uh, John, I think it was Richard Loringer who first told me about Harry and that memory kind of resurfaced, you know, a little bit later. And I think it was, I think it was the the being in his presence really was something for you guys that, you know, because I mean, of everything that I've learned today on this call and of course I asked you guys to give kind of the 101 so I, I I was hearing you guys paraphrase things that I've been reading in my own studies these last 3 or 4 months of getting more into the hairy hairy thing but it was it was the Stan Brakhage film screening you know with that that band from Texas. And I'm such a prude now. I don't even want to say their the first part of their band name, but I saw them lots of times, you know, my head ripped off my, my face ripped off my head uh, at St. Andrew's hall in Detroit, seeing them play live. And I was like uh, higher than a kite. And I said, Oh, this is why people love this band. It was the same thing with, you know, with the grateful dead, you know, it's like, Oh, this is why these guys are so uh, important uh, to us. And then, you know, you Michael talking about the log and the stone and the tape recorders and, so, so what? Um, we've been at this now for an hour, so um, we're gonna, we're gonna bring this thing in the next probably 20 minutes or so into some kind of a crash landing, and uh, we'll we'll post it up online for our, our friends to listen to. So, so, Ron, since you uh, uh, Michael invited you, you showed up on the screen, and I popped you into the chat. Where in you mentioned Hunter S. Thompson, Amira Baraka, Diane De Prima. You know, so you mentioned this and you're working in a bookstore and you're trying to get other people to, to read this stuff if you're a proprietor of books. Where in your in your beat poetry, cultural, countercultural pantheon, where where does Harry fit in? Um, and, and and I know at least in today's conversation, we, we see him as a. Uh, kind of like as a step uncle to everything about Americana music and folk music and psychedelic music. That's great about American. So I think, you know, and I've been obsessed with Dylan and the dead, you know, the dead since 87, when I saw them, Dylan, since my parents let me play their um, uh, free will and Bob Dylan album when I was about nine. So, uh, so where does Harry Smith fit in for you, Ron? And, and, and let's, Maybe Michael and John, um, while um, Ron's talking, why don't you all be thinking about some things that we need to sort of uh, not wrap this thing up, but to sort of spin this thing out you know, a little bit further so that anybody who gets off this reading will want to, or this listening will want to go out and, and do some ex- excavating and exploring on their own. So, So Ron, where does Harry Smith fit for you, in relation to all these other great writers and artists um, that you mentioned, including Hunter S. Thompson, who we hadn't we hadn't brought up yet uh, today, because I certainly think Fear and Loathing is out there in the in the in the multiverse for people uh, to
4: experience. Well, Ron? Hunter has the great Hunter had the greatest respect for the Beat Generation and was friends with them, and we had uh, some long talks about uh, the individual members. Of the so-called beat generation, but Harry, to me, is almost like uh, Benjamin Franklin in regards to the foundation of our country. He's that great mystery, and and he's a, a, the original. I mean, nobody can label or tag him in any way, no matter how hard they try, and and he's constantly, you know, destroying and creating. Um, the original creator <laughs> who's ripping it up and starting brand new. and But he was everything. But he didn't give a damn except for the experience of creation. And that to me is central to what, where my interest in the beat generation Lies and and Hunter S. Thompson and anybody, I, you know, I'm all. I believe that we all have a river, a nonstop river of creative fire flowing through us, no matter what society attempts to do to us, to believe otherwise. The Beat Generation, like they go back to the beginning of time, the poet. An ancient Greek meant creator, as in creator with equal to God in the creative world, and was regarded as an equal to the king. And Harry Smith, to me, represents—he's a member of that direct lineage, going back to the beginning of time as we know it. Where in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God and Harry Smith was the word as far as I'm concerned.
0: I think you know Ron. I think the anthology has a canonical status, like few other documents in pop culture do. So I, 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 I I'm with you all the way. Um, Tony Torrance says hello. I'm trying to get Tony and Leanne to hop on the actual live stream before we we check out. They might not be dressed for live stream. I don't know for prime time today. But we're so glad they're listening in. And this is going to be archived later as a podcast, as Ordinary Takes Number Six, talking about Harry Smith with John Wright, Michael White, and Ron Whitehead. Ron Whitehead, we have a request for a poem. Uh, uh for you from leanne and tony um and then and then michael and john are gonna help me help me land this spaceship uh un- ungracefully in 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 some other constellation so uh, ron read us a poem and then i'm gonna i'm gonna drop you off the stream
4: and let, let john and mike uh take take us out but ron give us give us a poem this is perfect timing because tomorrow night i will be doing a zoom with david amram the composer for the beat generation, he did, he did so much with them. He introduced the French horn to jazz, and he's one of the greats. He just turned 90. David and I have done so much work together in Europe and the U.S. and worked together. Tomorrow night, I'm his special guest um, on a Sunday night. He's reading Offbeat, collaborating with Kerouac, and he's reading reading a section in the book for the audio recording. It's recorded uh, and documented and um And so he's reading this chapter in the book about the work he and I have done together uh, at performing in Europe, the U.S., at Insomniacathons. I produced these 24, 48, 72, 90-hour nonstop music and poetry, Insomniacathons from New York to New Orleans, Kentucky, um, the Netherlands. Uh, I I produced the first one in Estonia last year. and so I wrote a poem I'm going to be reading with David's accompaniment tomorrow night. And it's titled Keep the Funk Shooting Up Poetry in New Orleans. Okay, I'm going to run to the other room and get the poem. Uh, I just printed it. Hold on, I count to five. Uh,
0: John, be thinking about what songs you want to play, and Michael, you're you're next okay. when when Ron when Ron's done with his
4: poem. Okay. Nineteen ninety six, and I'm in New Orleans, standing outside the Howlin' Wolf Club. I'm here to produce yet another Beat Generation-spirited forty-eight-hour nonstop music and poetry hackathon and, and I've been burning up the road day and night with no end in sight. I'm feeling burnt out, tired to the bone, so I'm searching for a fix of poetry to shoot into my blood to rejuvenate my spirit. I'm calling on Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy and Bill Burroughs, but I haven't found my Oregon accumulator, my new poetry yet, and my head is hanging so low it's dragging the ground. I've known nothing but failure lately, and I've been burning the candle at both ends so so long there's nothing left of me but smoke and ashes, so I'm wondering if the time has finally arrived for me to become cinder for that long-distance never-ending railroad track to North where my spirit screams out for help. And in a flash, I hear Allen Ginsberg whisper, take a hand, share the word. And out of the blue, the poetry gospel starts flowing through my groin and my gut and my heart and my head. And my, oh my, I jump and shout and sing. Yes, right in front of the Howland Wolf Club. I'm grabbed hold of by the poetry spirit. And now someone's singing and banging on a piano. So I open the door and peek in. And lo and behold, there's David Amran Ram, doing double note crossovers and over and unders. He's doing his la mala wala and zuzu zoo, zoo yah, ya. He's playing and scat singing in tongues right here in the middle of the holy New Orleans afternoon. And out of the blue, I find the poetry I've been looking for. I look up and there's the full moon smiling at me from over the Mississippi River. And I think of Algiers and Bill Burroughs and Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy. And I think of Neil's flame, gone, gone, gone. His naked body lying beside those long distance, never ending railroad tracks to nowhere. And I hope all the poets and musicians performing at this 48 hour nonstop music and poetry insomniacathon. Hell, I hope all of us keep the funk, keep that creative flame alive. Don't let the system break you. Don't let life break you. And I hear David Amran playing that piano and singing his pull my daisy and never give up blues. And in that moment, I know my reward is in the experience of poetry. And right here, right now, I'm in New Orleans with all these poets and musicians who somehow know the magical power of poetry, the word sets us free. And I think about Allen Ginsberg and what he said about taking somebody's hand, cause we're all in this together. We're pulling, we ain't pushing, we're letting it be. We realize that when one of us is lifted up, we're all lifted up. And I realize that poetry is life and life is poetry. And I feel an energy rising through me growing strong, coming from poets and musicians of all ages. And I don't feel like Anymore, I feel good. I feel strong. I feel reborn into poetry, into life, and it feels like resurrection, rebirth, rebirth into poetry. Right here, right now. Keep the funk shooting up poetry in New Orleans. All right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, everybody, you are listening to Ordinary Takes number six. It's a podcast and a live stream, uh, co-produced by Teacher on the Radio and Ordinary Space. Uh, fanzine, and I'm teacher on the radio, Andrew Smith. That was Ron Whitehead, an impromptu visitor. Ron, I'm going to bid you uh, farewell from the stream. You can stay in the backstage area and listen uh, if you uh, don't have a way to listen otherwise. And Michael White, o- over to you. To, we're going to start to wind this spiral dance into some kind of a, a culminating uh, moment. So, uh, Ron, sure. thank you again for joining the stream, and uh, you're listening to Ordinary Tales. Hey, Ron. Thanks, man. I'm, Ryan. And, I'm yeah. Andrew, and, and here's Michael White.
2: Okay. Well, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, Harry's music, but we didn't get into his films, and his films are just as revolutionary as the music. But maybe, maybe we can do another one, you know, someday I'll on t- Harry's. T- say,
0: say something um, right now. Just, just
2: briefly, uh, Harry uh, totally innovated. I mean, he was just the incredible innovator, and in the 40s, Harry would take a film, you know, a roll of film, and lay it across his table and had a bright light over it, and he painted frame by frame onto the film, and nobody had done that, and he didn't capture images, you know, through camera lenses, he painted onto the film, and, 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 Frame by frame by frame by frame by frame. So imagine what it took to do that. And his work is the most incredible abstract art. Here's an example of uh, one frame. And, you know, there's thousands of frames. And then when he runs them, they, they move and, and move in beautiful ways. And uh, I got to watch Harry present it once, and he presented it on two TV screens, one a little higher than the other, and and the picture would move from the one TV to the other, and then the music would get in. He would play any kind of music, and the music would go in sync to the uh, images. Every now and then, you know, of course, across across this stuff, the music and the and the movement of the images would just fall into place in a beautiful synchronistic way. So um, I've written a little bit about Harry, and as my final tribute to Harry, I'd like to to read a, just a couple of paragraphs. of of my tribute to Harry. so um, Harry's clarity had something of the eagle soaring in the expanse of the sky and something of the salmon leaping out of the water and back into the depths. Harry would look at me with his watery blue eyes reflecting his own sadness and the emptiness of the world and the amazing transformation of his poverty and his spartan existence into some sort of palatial grandeur. Harry could discover the art in any situation. His vision could penetrate the mundane and bring forth the sublime. He saw the magnificence of what was otherwise ordinary. He penetrated the veil and imbued the commonplace with an extraordinary sense of delight and fascination. He was an esoteric master living in total disguise. Talking to Harry was a lesson in detachment and intuition he picked up on cues and associations and followed tangents that carried the conversation into mazes and pathways that twisted and turned and revealed technicolor wonders at each new vista. He would officiate with a Cheshire shower grin and a very wry sense of humor. So that was just a sense of what it was like to be around Harry.
0: John, why don't you say a couple more words, however you feel uh, the spirit of Harry is moving you now, and and sing us another song, too? Oh, wait. Oh, there
1: you go. I had a question for for Michael. I I seem to recall that um, in in the 40s, um, Harry was admitted to the, the surrealists, like Andre Breton or whoever was the gatekeeper. You know, like, oh, okay, this American guy, he's in the. Club, is, is that, that that's your, your
2: that's right now? This is all rumor, uh, but they say that Harry did a, a two man show with Andre Bouton in Paris, and okay. that Harry was the only American uh, who ever got to uh, display his art along with the surrealists in Paris. So, uh, Harry's graphic art was just incredible, uh, surreal in a way, not like Salvador Dali or, or the other surrealists, you know, totally Harry. And totally abstract, totally with color and form in ways that uh nobody had ever done before and then he took it from there and took it onto film and then made it move
1: a, a, a lot of his artwork was was lost like like I, I've heard that many of his paintings have sadly um yeah 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 people as, as a visual and graphic artist that's like one yeah. one other facet of him that that he um M- Michael, did you ever um, see this? That, that he could, even when he was like this, you know, wizened old man, he he could draw perfect circles with a <laughs> with a, a pen or something, just like you were using a compass, just sketching yeah. on a piece of paper, yeah. just one perfect circle after an, after another. That uh, some some of his one of his paintings. Yes, from or? the
2: from the fifties in San okay. Francisco, very early work. Okay, a little take, a little glimpse of. Harry's work there.
1: And, and, he, and he, would, he would go and hear like a Dizzy Gillespie play and, and be painting like off to the sides of the, the stage. Like he would go listen to the bebop artists and paint at the same time.
2: And, and he, he said he could capture every note with a movement of his pen. And mm-hmm. so his art uh, reflected uh, the, the free form of jazz innovation. And, uh, and he loved the jazz guys. He loved Monk and, and all those jazz guys. And when he got to New York, He just felt like he was in heaven, you know, because he could go up to Harlem and and hear Monk every night, you know, and hear John Coltrane and hear Miles and and all the great jazz guys. And and his art had that same sense of beauty and innovation that those guys had in their music.
0: So you used the word polymath, John, earlier. Uh-huh. and and then and some people might not be familiar with that term, but it technically means somebody who has a a knowledge that spans a substantial variety of subject matter and then people might use the term renaissance man, but i I hate that term yeah i I, I think help me out here maybe you guys rip re- let's freestyle here for a minute. I'm thinking radical intuitive generalist <laughs> so, somebody who who has that funnel that Kind of emotional, spiritual, intellectual funnel for for data and gooey fun stuff. I, <laughs> you know, silly, uh, you know, silly string and and, and bubbles and i to, yeah, paper airplane. exactly, yeah. and, uh, and, yeah,
2: and string, uh, string figures. Uh, yeah. You know, he went yeah. nuts for string figures. Yeah. He was an expert on string figures. Uh, Seminole East Indians, uh, Indians.
1: Like uh, uh, quilts. Uh, on and on. And I, just one, one thing that struck me about him is that uh, w- whatever your, your thing was at the time that you, you knew about, like he, he knew more about it than, than you. <laughs> than you did. And when, mo- most of the time when I was hanging out with him, like my, my thing was Gaelic poetry. I was like obsessed wow. with that. I was like trying to learn Gaelic and, and you know, so, so Harry, do you know about, you know, and, and of course he knew about it. And he, he had like books on people that that he would never let me borrow. You know, of all those books stacked <laughs> up in his stacked up in his room, you know, and and so that was just like like he, he his knowledge was just so was just so vast. Of like every, and, 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 every
0: topic. And, and Michael, you said that thing famous to the famous but unknown by everybody else. Like I, that was that was then. Now we live in this world where everybody wants to be into that band that you've never heard of. Everybody wants to follow that Twitter account that no one else, you know, to, today feels like a time. And, and there is a revival, clearly that dust to digital release. And uh, Amanda, who I invited, who's a famous writer who did not risk say yes to the coming on the, on the podcast. She had other, other plans. She didn't have the, the dignity to respond to my email, which was awesome. Thank you, Amanda, if you're listening to this podcast now for answering my email. But, um, you know, uh, she just wrote an article in the New Yorker um, that uh, that Harry Kunzru, I, I, I mentioned, you know, that novelist, uh, he mm-hmm. talks about people are talking about Harry. He's swimming, you know, but I, I think it's it's OK now for the obscure to not remain obscure, because I think, John, what you said and, and, and Chris Funkhauser took issue with it in the comments, you know, where you compared it to people now listening to Nirvana and Wu-Tang Clan, you know, mm-hmm. That's not that, quite, you know. No, yet. but I think you, I think you were, right, I think you were right insofar as at the time that was pop music. I mean, those were the records that were being sold at that time. Twenty-seven, you know, um, sure. um, the to, Carter to, to Family,
1: Lemon, Jefferson were big artists in yeah. okay. and they That's
0: right. And and something about what people have tried to separate because I'm really interested in Alan Lomax too. But people have, who have tried to separate Alan Lomax from from Harry Smith. Was that this was pop culture? Harry Smith was just giving his favorite tracks to mm-hmm. Mo Ash, for you know for money because he
4: needed he needed uh-huh.
0: some money. You know yeah. it was a it was a sale, and it wasn't him going and spending. T- you know like uh, uh, Lomax would go to like the prison or to the church. You know mm-hmm. and he would record the prison songs in the prison. He would go to the church and record the church songs in the church. In- this, this is a little bit different. And and he did that with
1: like the you know the Kiowa peyote songs you know he he did field recordings. He went out and found the you know the, the stuff like that, you know, as as well. First,
2: he, was, he was the first guy to record
1: Zydeco. huh I, I did not know that. Yeah. As a, you know, huge
0: like from Louisiana it's like, oh okay. but the distinction John, all I was saying was with the anthology. The distinction with the anthology was this was literally him sharing before yeah. we had all these other methodologies for sharing. It was him literally saying, "Here's my here's my record collection. Yeah.
1: You know, let, let me share share it Let's with you. This this is great. This is important. This is the music you need to be listening to, and I and I want to share it with you. And rather than this this gatekeeper, like, well, I I know this obscure music that you've never heard of, and you know,
2: <laughs> but even even more, it was to it was to explode a bomb in society. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was the dynamite of culture." It was to blow things up and to, to open the door to uh, uh, immense uh, streams of creativity, both in film and in music. And that's what makes Harry you know, famous to the famous uh, because he, he set those bombs off and they exploded and culture changed as a result.
0: And I and I think there's something about studying Harry being an obsession seems to fit Harry, you know,
2: who yeah.
0: so are into Harry, Harry, Harry's into Harry the way that we're into Harry is kind of what I I feel. You know, <laughs> so. um,
1: one other thing I wanted to say is that I, and maybe this is kind of breaking down now is that for so many years there were there were these like kind of separate worlds. There were, there were the filmmakers who knew about him, and and I, I've met people, and they're like, "Wow, you you knew Harry Smith?" I was like, "Well, kind of a." And I was like, well, you know, he also did this really cool music stuff, and that's what I'm interested in. So they they don't know, or, or um, I, the, the, um when he was living at Europa, the like the local goth kids in Boulder would show up at his door because they'd heard that there was this guy who was this great mystic and a an archbishop in the OTO or something, and so they they would show up and hope he would do <laughs> some in black, black magic with them, and he he would tell them to get lost, but. So they're like all these different, you know, realms of people.
0: Yeah. Do. You know what? That's one area that I haven't really, you know, I mentioned in passing, you know, he's a magi and he's a, he's a shaman and all this stuff. But what about all that? Like, cause I, I was just reading, you know, he was interested in Aleister Crawley and stuff. So mm-hmm. like, so yeah. what, that was his well, father. He claimed.
2: He, he was- claimed that. That's right. He claimed to be the illegitimate child of Aleister Crowley. and now there's nothing to it. You know, it's not not true and, at all.
1: And then Princess Anastasia, it. that was his yeah. mother. Was, yeah. supposedly yeah. he was like the love child of, of those two. That's
2: right. And uh, one of Aleister Crowley's books has a Harry Smith uh, artwork on the cover. It's the the holy the holy book of Thema, okay. has uh, has Harry Smith on the on the cover.
0: So uh, what would you what. If you were trying to explain it and Michael, you try first, cause I know you are a, a bit of a, you know, a, a, a theologian in, in your own way. Um, and I'm a theologian and I, and I, and I feel just this magnetism from Harry that's just very, and I mean, and Ron, when he was still on the chat was completely, started quoting the gospel according to St. John, you know, verse one, chapter one, you know, in light of the folk anthology, I was just like, Oh my God, like all my words, all my words are colliding in the beginning was Harry Smith and Harry Smith was in the beginning. (laughs) So, but, but what do you, you know that word. I love that word, mystic, but we throw it around. We just—it's just—it's so overused. You know, like everybody who's been to a yoga class, you know, is—and sure, they should be. You know, but from your perspective, and I, I'm not against throwing it around either. I'm—I'm I'm, I'm happy to throw it around. But, but from your perspective, Michael, what? And having known him, what about Harry made him? What? What? Was it a child? like thing? Or what was it about him as an artist and as a, as a polymath that made him a mystic? Why is that a word that we have to include in that long list of the things that he was?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, he, he, definitely, he definitely had, that's another aspect that we haven't even begun to explore yet. You know, is, is he was a bishop in, in, in an esoteric church. And, uh, uh, and he, he had the credentials, to, uh, the, the real credentials in, in that tradition. And when he arrived in New York City, he was so happy to find Wiser Bookstore. And uh, I remember in the 80s, I got to visit Wiser Bookstore, and, and it was the most esoteric bookstore in, in New York City and probably in the world and had incredible collections of, of every kind of esoteric stuff. And Harry knew all that stuff. He knew the Egyptian he knew the Native American, he knew the Aleister Crowley black magic stuff, and and he knew the Christian uh, myth and and um, I don't think he knew much on Buddhism and yoga, but but um, in, in the Western esoteric traditions, Harry was a hidden master, and uh, Harry had the most beautiful sense of detachment, uh, and cared about nothing in the material world, except creation and collecting information and synthesizing that information into art forms and new art forms that would explode into the culture and, and bring forth whole new streams of, of realization and enlightenment and liberation
0: for all of us. So some of the stuff I've been reading definitely suggests that the, the mixtape itself now is its own genre. Like a collage is a legit genre of art. And I I teach it as a, as a curricular. It is a, it is really, now the mixtape is starting to become kind of the, the undergirding of my entire syllabus I, it's the course I teach is called American literature, but I'm, I'm kind of teaching it as an American studies class. Um, but because we don't have American studies and it's just, it is what it is. But, um, I, I, I think that's, he might have kind of invented what we now think of as the mixtape, and, and John, we talked about that at the beginning of the call a little bit in passing. But that's that's kind of why Harry Smith is so important, is because he's kind of in. When you talked about him painting on the move on the movie, I mean, he was inventing a genre. Uh, and I think Ron kind of said he's the OG. I think I think I might have heard Ron say that Harry Smith is the OG. So um, Harry Smith is the OG before they had the OG. Uh, John, how about a song, man? I feel okay. like we're, we're getting close to the benediction. What Michael just said felt a lot like the, the benediction. We've been out at this for almost a hundred minutes now. So we, we are gonna start to crash our spaceship soon, but, uh, or is it a wagon train, a mule train? I don't know what it is we're riding on right now, a, a horse and buggy train, but play us another song, John. Okay, um, I'll, I'll do one
1: by, um, from the anthology by, by Bascom Lamar Lunsford. And uh, Leanne and Tony, if, if you're still out there, then you'll remember uh, a few years ago when um, we were down in North Carolina and we went to, to find his grave in this little town outside of uh, Asheville. And he was, um, he was a mu- musician from the, the Asheville area and had a lot to do with kind of the folk music revival down there. Um. So, so that that's kind of interesting. That, that that getting connected with Harry Smith and listening to the music that he put together would lead me someday to be looking on my phone for like find a grave and using the GPS to find where where Bascom Lamar Lunsford is uh, is buried. Um, anyway, so this is uh, so this is this is one of his his songs called um, "I Wish I Was a Mole in the Ground." Great song. And it's um, uh, Harry on on his um, anthology, divided songs that th- there were ballads, which like kind of told a, a story, had some kind of narrative, like the Waggoner's Lad, and then there were songs, which were more lyrics, were which were just these kind of, you know, disconnected lyrics with maybe some kind of a, a theme or something. And so this is um, so this is one of the uh, songs. So I, I wish I was a mole in the ground.
3: I wish I was a mole in the ground. Yes, wish I was a mole in the ground. I say, mole in the ground, I'd root that mountain down home. Wish I was a mole in the ground. Oh, Kimpy wants a $9 shawl. Yes, Kimpy wants a $9 shawl. I come over the hill with a forty dollar bill saying, Baby, where you've been so long. Us, where have you been so long? Yes, where have you been so long? Oh I've been in the bend with the rough and rowdy men, oh so baby, where you've been so long. And I don't like a railroad man Yes, don't like a railroad man Cause a railroad man Kill you when he can And drink up your blood like wine Oh, can't you let your hair roll down Yes, you let your hair roll down Let your hair roll down, your bangs curl around, oh, Skimpy, let your hair roll down. And I wish I was a lizard in the spring, yes, I wish I was a lizard in the spring. I say, lizard in the spring, I'd hear my darling sing, oh, wish I was a lizard in the spring. And wish it was a bowl in the ground. Yes, I wish it was a bowl in the ground. I say, bowl in the ground. I'd root that mountain down, oh. I wish it was a bowl in the ground. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: So uh, what's going to happen next is that I'm going to archive this thing and we're going to put it up on all places that the Internet will host it and it will try to stay up on the Internet till it will outlast us. (laughs) Hopefully it (laughs) will still be there for our grandchildren. So, oh, well, remember when great-grandpa was on the Internet and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so uh, this has been an episode of Ordinary Takes, which is a podcast uh, hosted by Teacher on the Radio and Ordinary Space Fanzine. And my guests today have been uh, Michael White, of Brush Creek, Tennessee, and John Wright of suburban Detroit, Michigan. Uh, All of us were at one time temporary residents of the Jack Kerouac School in Boulder, Colorado, where both of my guests had the the immense pleasure of knowing the great Harry Smith. And we had a special guest from living beat poet of Kentucky, Ron Whitehead. And uh, um, look him up. Apparently, he's been hosting marathon poetry readings, uh, 72 hours, I think they called it, insomniacathons on the internet. So Ron White is a, a, a man after my heart and I'm gr- so grateful that I, I'm sorry Ron Whitehead. I'm so glad that Michael White, we've got White Wright and Whitehead and <laughs> Smith
3: <laughs>
0: we could we, we form, we form a, like a, a law firm Smith, White and Whitehead. Oh Lord <laughs> help, Lord have mercy. All right. so um, I want to try something new. Um, and I just as we're wrapping this up, and, 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 I'm, and it probably doesn't even belong on the podcast, but what, what the heck, right? Because I want to use a little bit, of maybe slight excerpt of this on the radio. I'm going to do a live radio show on actual radio, 88.5 FM, uh, Tennessee Tech Radio next Saturday, where I'm going to play suggestions of songs that all of you send me. Um, I'll put the playlist together during the the next seven days. And at 11 a.m., same time as we tried to start today, it'll be on WTTU 88.5 FM, Cookville, and it does stream. Uh, the best way to listen to it, uh, streaming, is using the TuneIn app, uh, and you can listen to it up there in Detroit. But up. Uh, uh, M- Michael and John, for, for that purpose, would you guys each do me a really, uh, really quick radio ID? I used to do those, and I haven't done them in years. So say, "Hey, I'm John John Wright, and you're listening to the teacher on the radio on 88.5 FM WTTU in Cookville, Tennessee." And Michael, would you do one for me too? And I'll rip those uh, from the podcast into into the broadcast next Saturday, and then we'll we'll start to uh, we'll start to crash this spaceship or log train or whatever. Uh, runaway ra- railroad train without brakes, whatever this is that we've been doing for the last hundred minutes now that we've been at it. Uh, would you all do me that favor and give me a radio ID if you need me to say it again, real slow, what it is. Say it again. I think I have most of it. Say it again. So one more uh, time. it's going to be, uh, you're listening to the teacher on the radio program on 88.5 FM. Next guest, I'll, I'll send it to him in advance on 88.5 FM WTTU, WTTU, Cookville, Tennessee. Okay. John, you go first, and then Michael, you go, you go second. Uh, 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 John?
1: Okay. Hi, this is John Wright, and you're listening to The Teacher on the Radio on 88.5 FM, WTTU Radio, Cookville, Tennessee.
2: Michael White, happy to be talking about Harry Smith on The uh, Teacher on the Radio program on 88.5 WTTU, Cookville, Tennessee.
0: You guys did so great, and um, I will probably I, my editing skills are not the best, but I'll try. I'll try to um, excerpt a few moments from this glorious podcast into next uh, Saturday's radio program for anybody that missed it. So, um, uh, part, parting, parting, last couple of words. Uh, um, we'll go backwards this time. Michael, and and, and, and then, John.
2: Well, I'll just say uh, thank you, Andrew, for uh, for hosting this and, and uh, inviting me. And, and thanks for letting Ron Whitehead read one of his poems. That was a real treat. So thank you, Ron. And um, I hope we've inspired some people to uh, go on YouTube and watch some Harry Smith videos or or uh, pull up some Harry Smith uh, anthologies of American folk music and, and dig into that stuff. It's beautiful stuff. It's the old Weird America.
1: Uh, Andrew, yeah yeah, th- thanks for bringing us together and I, I just love hearing from different people who knew Harry and, and getting different perspectives and, and, and he- hearing the stories like always the you know funny, poignant stories about about him. So so th- thanks for putting this together and, and all the tech glitches we had at the beginning. I'm, I'm glad it finally came together for everybody.
0: So this has been Ordinary Takes and uh, John Wright and Michael White and Ron Whitehead have been my guests today. And this will be put out there on all places that I am on the internet, but you can follow Teacher on the Radio and Ordinary Space on Facebook. So you can get notified of future live streams and we're going to be live streaming every other Saturday. And on the alternating Saturdays, I'll be doing live radio. So for the foreseeable future, Saturday at 11 a.m. is when I'll be on some form of broadcast platform sharing my passion for music and pop culture. And the new uh, Smithsonian's yet again, they're re-releasing again, the same CD they re-released back in the nineties and sold out of. So keep an eye out for all of the Harry Smith um, books and releases coming soon. But the Anthology of American Folk Music is coming out again from Smithsonian Folkways. And if you're not familiar with Smithsonian Folkways, what a great place to to find out about traditional and folk music um, that's happening in the tradition that Harry Smith was a part of. So we're gonna sign up uh, for today and hopefully we'll see you all on a future live stream. look up uh, Michael White's books uh, under the name JM White and and John Wright. I'm sure we'll be in better touch now than we have been the last 30 years Mm -hmm. since we (laughs) met uh, at the Jack Kerouac School. Everyone have a beautiful afternoon.